Slippery When Wet Classic Fairy Tales of Murder and Mayhem by Linda Fenneck. Acknowledgements. Many thanks to granddaughter Amanda, Archer, a friend, author Rebecca J. Martin for the contributions to the cover art. His work was inspired by our love of writing many horror, murder, and conspiracy songs such as I Can't Sleep at Night, The Henchman's Coming Random, Adoption, and Criminal Tales Blues, which will be found all major streaming sites under the band, our band name, Slippery When Wet. Linda Van Sydow, Kant Von Shadow. Rapunzel. Once upon a time, Abigail asked, Oh, all these dreary places. It must be absolutely worse yet. A ladder instead of stairs can hardly catch my breath. Just for just now, just walking. You know, we go where the work is, Amber said. Well, that's it. That is all. I have a hair, Amber. Amber, the... You're always obvious, oblivious to that what kind of hovel we live in. You think this is what I want, Abigail? I suppose you'd rather not eat. Yes, forgive me, dear. Living over a barn is so delightful. I shall be soon craving hay if we stay here any much longer. At least it's not. At least it's not sleeping in the forest, dining on snake. I wonder what that rich lady in the big house is eating tonight. Better than the slop we are living on, I'm sure. Wasn't, wasn't it you just moaning about being fat, Abigail? Baby fat, like the heifer ready to drop. Maybe I, I am in the right place, come to think of it. You know the barn is not being used for animals anymore. I think you ought to be shut up for now. Well, it still smells to me. Not that it's not you in this condition running up and down for everything. I can't even cook inside of this tinder box. He nodded her instead, mumbled something about her needing his dinner. About him needing his dinner. How hungry he would be, Abigail wondered. If she ever if he knew lately, she felt like feeding him poison for dinner. She turned around, taking in the tiny living quarters, really nothing more than a wooden box in a loft. She moved to the only filthy little window in the room and forced it open, and gazed out. Was she, was she dreaming? Perhaps it was a bearable. Here, after all, the window looked down on the most beautiful sea of puppies now blooming behind a high wall. A breeze kicked up at the moment as if to tease her, infusing the air and sweet perfume. She watched men rise as the petals fluttered away, exposing plump, milky pods, perfect and ripe, of ready harvest. Amber, huh? she called. A voice growing soft and breathy. Come over here. Look at this. What now? Just get over. Just get over here. I can't believe I didn't notice before. Darn it! I can't get anything to eat. Can I at least get some rest? Stop being so obstinate and keep your voice down. Most, most everybody know your our business. Okay, okay. He grunted out of his chair and lumbered to the window. What is the commotion all about? He said, asked, following a glaze. Oh, no, you're not having any of that. You you, you gave it up. I'm going to have this baby one day now. I just need something for the pain. You know that's impossible anyway. We have no money, Abigail. Who said anything about buying them? She hissed. I don't care. 
How will you get some? Just get them. There's no point arguing when she got this way, which is now much too often. You wanted any peace, you'll have to go do her bidding, shaking his head and sighing. Clambered down the ladder into the first floor storage area. It was dusty and long search, but he discovered a piece of old meat hooks and a long coil of horsehair rope. It would work, sweating in the barn, waiting for the dark. He almost lost his nerve. He didn't want to be caught stealing from the powerful enchanters, Dame Gruffle, but he did, could not return empty-handed either, or Abigail would do something foolish like trying to get them get them herself, and she would surely get caught. He felt like a thief in the night. No, he was a thief in the night, he realised. A falling shrubbery singing the, ringing the wall, called clawed his flesh as if punishing him for his coming misdeed. It was a new moon and the landscape was black velvet, but even in the dark he knew he was staring at what was at least a ten-foot wall. And in the rope, Annabelle tried his first shot, a tossing hook over the wall. He blindly scrambled out the way in the dark as the hook came crashing down again. Down. He didn't he wasn't fast enough and bit his tongue, suppressing a scream. A shot hook and grazed the side of his head. Endeavour cursed under his breath, wishing he could go back home. But a picture of raging Amagel flashing in his head kept him at it finally, until finally he had a bit of luck. At last, without putting any, out an eye, he scrambled over the wall and staggered a few, a pour full of blooms, heart-pounding a flood of the journey and drove him quickly back over the walls, soaking wet and shaking the thoughts about the heavy consequences of a thief. Amber fled, forgetting the hook on the top of the wall. By the time he reached the loft, he was exhausted and thrust the flowers into Abigail's face. Do you own your evil deed, woman? I need to get some sleep for work. Oh, no, you don't. Not so fast. What the devil's this? I can't make anything out of this. You need to go back and get at least twice this. And you wonder who and more that would be better. You're crazy. That woman's in the trenches. I'm not going back there over there. Look at me. I'm a mess of bleeding. I'm smelling like a goat from pouring sweat. Big man crying like a baby over a few scratches. You're going back over there. And you're going to get more now. And don't come back until you do so, she is. Ambula was still dazed from the recent blow. He gently probed a growing knot on the side of his head. His hand came away red. He wiped on the tunic. Okay, I'm going, he mumbled, and sat back out once again, fight the unruly hedges. He hoisted himself over the wall for the second time, but that was feeling weak and lost his grip. He somehow tumbled backward into the ground, with a resounding thud and water of the air escaping his lungs. He fought and didn't do his head wound well enough. He lay there, he lay still listening while trying to recover his strength from grasping like a fish out of water. Now his shoulder didn't feel right either. As he lay there again trying to grow his senses and praying not to get caught, he listened closely to so, that for anyone else moving about. Only sympathy of crickets played by the, to the flowers. His head cleared at last. He rolled over and began to brought belly call back through the back pit pitch black till he reached the closest patch of flowers. 
This time he did not timidly pluck a few stems, vault back to the wall of the wall. Said he violently yanked them out of the ground as fast as possible, and stuffed them into pockets and in any other places thought he could carry some. Disoriented, he just stood and stumbled back to the wall. Oh no, where's the rope? Had the crickets gone quiet? Now all we heard was his heart slamming in his heart. chest. He frankly groped around the wall, both to his, both left and right, and then suddenly his hair stood on end, like an electrical charge in the air. He mopedly froze at his tracks, a throaty female laughter floated eerily all around him. It sounded neither friendly nor amused. He threw down the poppies and once again, to no avail, began to frankly scurry back and forth, searching for the rope. From nowhere, a powerful hand shot out a glove, clapped his wrist, a bolt of lightning flashed. He found himself gazing at who would only be the unconscious herself. He had not met her when he had been hired. She stood statuesque and stunning, gleaming pattern of hair fell to her wrist, thick waves it adulterated in the breeze against memori- almost memorizing him. He could not guess her age. She would have been twenty, or she could have been two hundred. She scared the life out of him. She gazed at the sky and softly murmured, Looks like the rainy season's coming. His knees shook as he remained in a face gripe. We could do, we can use some rain, she continued. The unconscious turned her head, her eyes on him. They glowed like a cat in the dark. Uh, uh, he stuttered. I was only getting some of your beautiful body, puppies for my dear child bride. Please have mercy. Don't you mean your pregnant, addicted tart of a wife? If you don't, if you don't get her some, although she'll, she'll die. Foolish man, you believe that? It makes you a chance to steal from me. No, she's just my wife. Do you know what they do what they do to feed Savannah? Uh, she coolly said. They hang them. Oh please, please, he sobbed. I beg you. I'll give you work, food and shelter. This is how you pay me. I should have taken a pass on you as soon as I laid eyes on your wife. And yes, I see you too through. You did not know it. She's a bad one. And that poor child you two are bringing into the world, this world, she can only take care of yourselves. And speaking of the child, are you sure it's yours? What can I do? Adabar's voice quivered. He was terrified of the idea of swinging in the rope. He would promise anything to avoid Dane Groff's wolf. It's among those small things you can grant me, Adabar in turn. You shall have all the puppies you can carry. I wish to play you a lovely big basket to carry them all. Anything, anything, please. Just please, you grovelled. Are you certain, Admiral? If only turning back the price shall be tremendous if you cross me. His, his wrists grew hotter in her grip. It was near a blazing fire. He Was it turning off his heat? A river of sweat flowed down the cliff of his back. I want the child, she said. If it's a girl, you know. Had he heard her wrong? What do you mean? When a child becomes, it belongs to me, she gripped, tightened painfully. His arm, his voice rose when she spoke. You want the child? And it then dawned on him. It was his chance to escape. Rich woman would care for the child, Abigail, would look out for herself, a fanny with a drunk tart of a wife. And likely a bastard child was not all, all he wanted. Perhaps indeed it was not his. 
even if, he, if he, it stung when the entrance said it. She made him face the truth. Already he was only making plans in his head to leave. Perhaps later, when Abigail passed out in a puppy stupor, he would gather up his things and sneak away. Dame Groffel was right. He was a fool. Let Abigail deal with her when the time came. She probably wasn't capable of taking care of it. Anyway, yes, Abigail whispered. Yes, he said again. A more convincing, yes, you may indeed have it. His wrist still in a death grip. She ranked him forward nearly, knocking him off his feet. He yelped at a sudden sharp pain. She had sliced his finger and jammed it against a piece of staff by stiff parchment. She had no idea how she produced so fast or out of nowhere. Done, she said. I never forget what I said. Do you even think of running off with a child? As long as I have your blood, I will always track you. She quickly dropped his wrist, rolled up the parchment, and she was gone like a puff of smoke. Avidel quickly felt the change in the air. He tried to rub some circulation back in his arm. The crickets now resumed chirping. A breeze whipped up, and he heard a gentle but unspeakable slap of rope swinging against the wall. He stood for a moment, rubbing his wrist and regaining what remained of his senses. He took a few cautious steps forward and stumbled right over the basket. She had promised a heavy rope was already attached to the sturdy handle so he could haul it up when he was ready to go. Now he was free to wander further in the garden. The ground was so thick of poppies it was easy to grab handfuls and basket filled quickly. A storm was trying to move in. A fox of lightning in the horizon helped to guide his way. He grinned to himself. Soon there will be some, no more demanding Abigail, no future screaming rat to put up with. He will be free. Abigail was huffed back to the barn and dropped the basket out in front in the dirt. Abigail, he hollered up for the walls of the window. Here's your darn flowers. No no response. Typical, we thought. Where was she? He walked around the back of the barn. They had a stroke in the fire. There was a reed a pot over it. Oh, you're back at last. She taunted Abigail Hornsing himself. Why so long? You're fortunate. I returned at all. She caught me. Did you get them or not? I'm losing patience. Are you? It's a possible satisfy. Yes, I got them. Then why not stop blubbering and bring them over here to me? Abigail retorted. He fetched a basket for her. As much as he hated what she was doing, his curiosity was got the better of him. He watched her suddenly nimble-fingered wife, who normally could barely fix a decent egg for him. Like a mask corpse, he towed over a steaming pot that reeked of lime and barred ammonia. In the firelight, he could see that as Emigo turned each bit open, some milky pod and held them up one by one, letting their sap ooze into the boiling construction. But soon a white scum began foaming at the top of the kettle water, and she carefully scooped it off. He had seen enough, as he was much too tired to talk. Even his hunger was subsided. It didn't matter anymore to anyone. Anymore. He decided to wait till he earned his first pay, and he'd be gone. I'm going to bed now, he said. Abigail didn't even look up for a task. Honora bid him good night. After another day, long day's work, Abigail was great. Abigail was grateful for finally collapsing in the chair. Abigail, are you up there? I need something to eat. Silence. The sleeping curtain around his pallet fluttered in the corner of his eye. He snapped his head that way. He rose, walked over, 
and thrust aside. Abbott with her gazed up from the sleeping pellet. Eyes out of focus, she raised her head slightly. He bobbed his hands gently. Her neck before putting back putting it back down and closing her eyes again. Suddenly Edward uh, was no longer worried about missing dinner. He could always eat later. He'd got some paid with and that and with Emma's current condition, he wouldn't have to wait all night for for her to pass out. He immediately hurried to the meagre larder inside to pack himself a lion's share of food, along with other things. He's going to have to spend the night in the forest tonight without her. He'd be able to move more quicker, even more permanent shelter far quicker. He doubted the hunt that enchanters would let Abigail go hungry. No, not with the baby coming. No worries. Abigail would have the baby here. Dane Goffle would claim it. As for him, he'd be long gone. Abigail's flowers of joy were finally wearing off. She woke up to fussing that was lately Abigail was fumbling around in the dark. Why didn't he light the lantern? Was he up? What was he up to? She had never trusted him. He always was able to get a job, and she needed that, especially right now. She heard him going down the ladder. Where was he going? She decided to follow. She descended on the lower level and called, Emmanuel, are you down there? On the doors was a door. She stepped out in the night. Fingers of lightning shot across the sky. The back lit Emma's back bulk, hurrying away. In a gathering dark, it appeared to be a bundle of his belongings. She didn't know what gave him so much strength as late as her pregnancy. Perhaps the great, the great haze of anger quickly overcoming her as his cavalier, cavalier desertion. Sprinting, the lowered one shoulder, launching herself with a dead weight center into Elverdale's back, sending him face first into stone wall of curling sack. He had gone in scattering around him. His ankle and his nose snapped simultaneously. He tried to make a step and screamed in agony. A bitch had hobbled him. His nose leaked blood and he dizzy. He dizzy sank to the ground. The sky flashed again and Gabriel spied a metal meat hook on the ground, winking up at her. Take me, he spoke to her in a puppy out of brain. She obeyed, grasping it with both hands. The sky continued to strobe. Lightning held way and again charged. Abadell now with his back to her, sitting on the ground, massaging his ankle. She covered a short distance. She swung the hook in the air with both hands and brought it down firmly into his skull. She viciously yanked it, back, rip it, rip back ripping a huge piece of bone along with it being a torrent of red and grey matter pouring out of his head. He flopped over into one side into the dirt. Abigail's unnatural burst of energy now deserted her. Sudden pain tore to her sides, doubling her over. Water gushed from between her thighs. Oh no, not now! She screamed and she slipped out of her mess and filling her face into Abigail's, going between more screams. She attempted to roll away. The storm was coming up and manic lightning bolts shot all across the sky. The earth itself now rumbled violently beneath Abigail as huge drops of rain assaulted her, when the untransers materialised in Abigail's water-blurred vision, silhouetted against the light snow. I see my child is coming, the enchanter said, lowering, towering over her. Even while in pain, Abigail was stunned by the decoration. What do you mean, your child? 
I figured since you just murdered your husband, you didn't, um, you didn't, uh, you didn't approve of our arrangement. Abel grasped the numbers shot pain racked to the body. Well, no, he wasn't deserting me. And then just one last crash and rip Abigail apart, hemorrhaging till she lost her consciousness. The entrance sped down to scoop out the newborn, while Abigail's life leaked away in the rain, along with her husband, Abigail's. She glanced at the bodies, compo- compost for the fields, she thought, returning to her task. She clamped the umbilical wall between her teeth, nearly, se- neatly severing it. Lightning continued to flash wildly, and heavens now continually opened, almost as if on cue. Dane Goff stood and raised the newborn to the downpour, and it washed the infant clean. She declared, I see, I shall call you Rapunzel. She approached adolescence faster than an actress could ever wish for. Rapunzel had her monthly a short while back, and the farmhands were already sniffing around like dogs. It would be no use to replace them. They all were the same when they saw her. Sea green eyes and abundance of pale pearl blonde hair, an hourglass figure was unmistakably magnet, unmistakable magnet for the young men. And tranches of made her rain in, in her comely hair, waving into thick braids and pulling under a kerchief, hoping to at least deter the young male lust. Rapunzel soon discovered she could hide things in those thick coils that had continued to grow, grow like weeds, now several times the length of her body already. Her love's one lonely spring morning, a young field hand named Peter spied her sitting on the garden, standing herself. He came up to her and said, You can't, you can make something magical with that. You will make you feel like a princess. He thrust a, thrust a frank, fat banquet at her, and he covered as he spoke. But you must hide these from Dame Guthrie. Meet me. Here after dark, and I will teach you, you know. As it, as it sounded so exciting to her, she definitely bored at the time. And the only girl she ever saw, even close to her age, was a little one called Red, who stopped from time to time to get flowers for her grandmother. She would never stay and visit with Rapunzel for more than a hello and a few polite words. And later that afternoon, the flowers still carefully tucked under her ropes, a braise, she met up with Peter. He sneaked away to Long Lead, too, in a heavy thicket of the forest where she stayed. He built a small fire in an old stove and taught her how to turn the pods into magic. He promised as well as he taught her other things she did not know about. She liked it so well. The next day she invited him to the empty apartment for the old st- above this old storage barn to join her in the panelet behind the curtain. I still hung there. It was, like, it was taking a chance, but there were no insects to crawl over it in the loft like those invading his snack shack, and then gave her a bit of much-needed thrill to think she could do under a, do it right under the Dane Gross nose. The Enchantress was busy in town a day anyway, and Rapunzel knew she would likely be gone till sundown. Dame Gruffle 
left at the usual time, but a rock slide happened to block Enchantress's route apart. Way in a trip, it was an impossible without a area. The path to simply steer the carriage round. So you have to turn to the farm, have to to mend to get back to remove it. At the carriage pulled through the gate, her sharp senses kicked in high gear. Something was definitely amiss. She had barely was out of the carriage when she heard faint laughter wafting towards her. It came from our barn. She was sure of it. Her interest dreaded what she must, uh, what she must do. She did not hesitate and set off a brisk place, standing beneath loft more muffled goggles adrift. Drifted through the above, mistakable odour premeditated in the dull barn. Dame Gruffle had the ability of moving in total silence and made use of it now. She reached the curtain and yanked it aside and witnessed to her worst fear. Peter made a move to flee and Trantus instantly placed but both he and Rapunzel in a chance. It's all over, Rapunzel, she said. Since you enjoyed it so well up here, you'll never leave. You'll have sealed your young man's fate as well. Workers were summoned to the barn and quickly began double reinforcing reinforcing the apartment walls at Dame Gruffle's orders. The men jumped at her commands like terrified rabbits and could not believe Peter was so foolishly bold. They had little trouble realising Peter's fate while the blood-curling screams drifting from the curling house. Even all the hammering and pounding wasn't enough to block out all the horrible sounds. As the men watched, the enchanters again entered the loft and sadly shook her head as she spoke. I've had such high hopes for you, she told Rapunzel, though the girl could not yet respond. But you gave me no choice but to board up the loft and keep you in it for your own safety. I should have learned, known better to then to take on a child of a peasant, such peasant stock. She turned and walked away out of the apartment, closing the only exit door behind her. Then she snapped her fingers at one of the men, ordering them to permanently board it up as well. Sundown approached. A few orange rays leaked through the single small wall window as Peter's funny screams finally ceased and Rapunzel's trance was beginning to wear off. Morning dawned and Chances went to check on Rapunzel. She stood on the window, slowly chanting, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Rapunzel appeared in the window and spat, Get away, I'll never wish to see you again. Have it your way then, but you'll get healthy. You'll not be, you'll be so, you will not be so obstinate. Perhaps I will turn later, if in, if in the mood, and see if your disposition is improved. Rapunzel placed the, the small dwelling, searching her way out, but there would be no escape. The only exit was well sealed, and one window was at least thirty foot above the ground. She had little uh, more than a pitcher of water, a basin, chamber pot, and would need a prison. By now she's almost having murderous thoughts about him and child She also knew that a woman could simply throw her into a trance and she was helpless against her. Helpless against her, but for the time for a young life she experienced rage, and she was getting hungry. It only made her angrier. It was always, almost sundown. Again, the enchanters showed up. Hey, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Why must I do such an odd thing? Because I'm going to get, use it to climb up. You will break my neck if you do that. If Not if you wrap it around the window frame, hooks first. By now, Rapunzel was starving and saw the basket. 
round Dame Ruffles' arm at last, her long, thick rays tumbled from the window, and then this became Rivundle's day-to-day existed. Dame Ruffles brought the food and water, and chambermaid would wait until she lowered her discards. On the day she finally decided she was losing her mind, she heard the pounding moves. Approaching, she dashed to the window, leaned out to see a well-dressed young man astride a fine steed. His definitely was not one of the farmhands mounted a carriage nag. Rapunzel waved and called to him, having no idea he was the king's young son. He was a bit of a rogue and enjoyed riding unannounced through others' properties. He especially liked imitating the locals when bored. He even got a feel out of watching some of them fall on their knees before him. He halted his horse beneath the window, gazed at the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen. Who are you and what are you doing up that window? He asked. Who wishes to know? Oh, saucy one, he fell instantly lost. The other witches of the kingdom groveled at his feet. It's so droll. Come here, he commanded. You still don't, don't, didn't answer my question, she retorted, he puffed. He said, she says, I am Prince, son of King Nefarious. Well, Prince, why not come down here? There, perhaps you can come up here. Well, why can't you come down as I command? Had she not been so beautiful, he may have been angry, but he was not thinking with proper head. This is my prison, she said. What do you mean, prison? An untrained says, lock me up here. She is jealous because I am so beautiful. I wish to make, make, make me happy. In my prison is a bouquet of flowers of joy. The prince was brought with a technical challenge. Never heard of such a flower. But still he prepared to enter the entire kingdom, such the entire kingdom, high and low. But how shall I get them to you? Just do it, and when you shall find out, do not bring them before sundown, or the entrance will have me killed if he catches you. The prince returned, promised to return that eve. He had no idea the enchantress of the main supply of the kingdom, that the girl, or what the girl requested. He did not know if he grew the fields only yards away on the other side of the wall, or not, did she tell him, Rapunzel? Nor, nor would she tell him. Rapunzel did not want the enchantress to catch him and find out she had spoken to him, nor put him up to the task. If he truly offence, he would easily be able to find out phone for her. The prince spurned his back, horse back to the castle as fast as he would go and ordered his personal servants to scour the kingdom of the flowers. The hours called as he waited for a word. He paced his quarters, but as well at the last servant returned, clutching a hearty bouquet. At sunset he had fresh mounted saddled and rode off to the enchanted domain, busy pushing his horse to the open, ra- open run. He was not, not first as noticed the steam of petals in his wake, but there was nothing he could do but do now. He'd bring them away anyway to prove he's made the effort. Surely he should, should consider the noble jester. The horse snorted in protest, a too vigorous yank on the reins. A full moon glinted off a bundle of braids, giving away her position at the windows. I'll come with your flowers. He thrust the petalous bulbs towards her, exactly as she wanted. What happened to the petals? She teased, even in approaching gloom. She could see his reddening face as he stammered. 
Uh, I was riding so fast that, relax, Prince, I was only teasing. Yeah, oh, beautiful, she said, coldly tossing down her brazen in invitation. Confused, Mar- confusing Marcy's face. I'm in silly. It's only, it, it's only another of the evils she's done to me. The room I'm in sealed is the tight as a tomb. I feel I should never be free again. Young and strong, he easily climbed the distance and pulled himself up to the steel. She begged him to unwind the braids from the sturdy hooks. He felt a bit foolish out of, out of handful of what was supposed to be flowers, but now looked more like pale little bald heads. Rapunzel beaming at him. Uncoiling the last of her hair with the hooks, she pulled it in, all in, and then grabbed his hand, pulling him towards the curtain. He must had been close to dawn when he departed the room, but she told him when he returned to stand below the window and only chant, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Let down your hair. He made it back to stable just minutes before sunrise, pretending to be pretending to be stable and he couldn't sleep and went out early for a ride. He was not tired anyway. Elated and spent, already looked forward to being with her again. The prince was not able to slip away. Several days, he did not want to repeat the embarrassment of gift of ball flowers, and hoped she could be happy to see him. He was after all the prince, standing over under the window, he softly called out, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. The prince listened for a moment and said, More falsely, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Rapunzel finally appeared at the window, looking quite unlike her fresh, pretty self, eyes black and soot, underneath his weaving in place. She looked like she might tumble out on the ground if not careful. What is wrong with you? I'm coming up later, Rapunzel. Let me down your hair in this instant, he hissed impatiently, but trying to keep his voice down. What did you bring me? she stirred. You know you have to let me up let me up to find out. The prince was by botanically he challenged and never heard of such a flower. But he still appears to search the entire kingdom high and low. How will I get how would I get them? But still, he's prepared to search the entire kingdom to get them. But how shall I get them to you? Just do when you shall find out. Do bring them before sundown, or Chantess will, will kill me if she catches you. Prince promised to return at eve. He had an idea that Chantess was the main supply of the kingdom that quite all requested. He did not know that he grew in the fields only yards away on the other side of the wall. Nor did he tell him. Did she tell him? Rapunzel did not want the trances to catch him and find out she had spoken to him, nor put him on a task. He truly is a, is a, is a, is a prince. He should easily be able to find it. Some for the prince spurned his back of the holes back to the castle. Past he could get go and ordered his personal service to scale the kingdom of flowers. The hours called as he waited for the word. He paced his quarters, but one at last one servant returned, clutching a hearty bouquet. As sunset, she had fresh mounted, 
a fresh mounted saddled, rode off the enchanter's domain, busy pushing his horse into the over. Overrun, he first noticed the steam vettles his wake, but nothing he could do now. It would bring them anyway to prove he made the effort. Surely she would consider the noble gesture. The horses snorted in protest at the too vigorous yank on the reins. A full moon glinted off where hand was raised, giving away a position at the window. I'll come here with your flowers. I'll come here with your flowers. He thrust the petals bells up towards exactly what she wanted. Why aren't it a pebbles? She teased, even the approaching gloom. You could see his running faces, she stammered. Oh, well, I was riding, she asked that. Relax, Prince, I was only teasing. It's beautiful, she said, cautiously, tossing down a brazen invitation. Confusion marked his face. God, I'm silly. It's just only another of the evil things she's done to me. I'm a room I am sealed as tight as a tomb. I fear I shall never be free again. Young and strong, he was easily climbed the distance and pulled himself up over the still. As he began to unwind a brace from the sturdy hooks. He felt a bit foolish out of holding out a handful of what was supposed to be flowers, but now looked like pale little bald heads. Rapunzel was beaming at him, recalling the last of the hair before the hooks. She pulled it in until pulled it all it all in, and then grabbed his hand, pulling him towards the curtain. It must have been close to dawn when he departed her room. She told him that when he returned to stand below the window and softly chart Rapunzel, Rapunzel. Let your hair down. Let down your hair. You made it. You made it back to the stable just minutes before the sunrise. I pretended to be his stable hand. He couldn't sleep. Went out to ride early, early for a ride. He got to the ride anyway. Elated and spent, he was already looking forward to being with her again. Prince was not able to slip away for several days. He didn't want to repeat of embarrassing gift of all flowers. I hoped she would pretty would just be happy to see him. He was after all the prince. Standing on the window, he softly called out, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your head out, let down your hair. The prince listened for a moment, then more falsely, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. Rapunzel finally appeared at the window, looking quite unlike her fresh, beautiful, pretty sight, her eyes black, a soot underneath. She was wearing evening in place. She looked like she might have tumbled out on the ground, if not careful. What is wrong with you? I'm coming up there, Rapunzel. Let down your hair, this instant, he hissed and impatient, trying to keep his voice down. What did you bring me? she slurred. You have to let me up to find out. She was indeed an obstinate one, he thought. She finally twinned the braids around the hooks and tossed them to him. When he clambered over the, the steel, Rapunzel unwound the hair and drew it in. Her eyes are still at half mass. Where are my flowers? What's wrong with you? he said yet again. I didn't bring any. The petals are all blown away while I rode. Her bloodshot eyes glowed angrily. You fool! I can't care about. I don't care about the flattles. She didn't look so pretty anymore. She made her he, made him uncomfortable. She looked like a predatory cat. I am the prince, and I still I've not stood here and be called a fool. He turned around and leaned up to the windows, looking out. I demand you throw out your hair so I can leave. Snatching by the up the wayward garden hoe, she then began. Then she had been trying to use to hack her braids. She could hook them to the window. She and herself escaped. She screamed, "Down here to hell!" And changing at him, she jammed it nearly in the back of his neck. "You'll not leave till I say you do." Prince could do no more than gurgle response. She caught 
in a red haze of anger and disappointment, she racked one of the thick braids around his bloody throat and choked away whatever his life remained. The next morning, Dave got full got all heard with runs of daily rations to her surprise and a grand horse sniffing them out. Hired Hand by Melissa Skoroda An excerpt You hire me a what, Marlowe? Smith asked behind the clenched teeth. Marlowe, Joey said, as if talking to a five-year-old. It's a birthday present. You need to cut loose. You need a break. Marlowe stared at her best friend, an administrative assistant, wondering if she'd taken to drinking in the middle of the afternoon. Joey stood before her, a red spandex excuse of a dress in her hands, a calm look on her perfect face. Yep, she'd been hitting the ball. A break? A break doesn't go... Does not include hiring a gigolo for the night. With an expressed high sigh, Joey tossed the dress on the bed. Listen, hun, you've been working like crazy the last few months. Problems with the company. Well, you need to get laid. Yeah, I know, but a gigolo? Joseph Venom. A gigolo? Listen, you haven't dated anyone since Vic. You need this, and Clarice owed me. Only Joey would have a childhood friend who became the owner of escort service. Marlowe didn't even want to contemplate what favour Clarice owed her. There's no way on earth this is going to happen, Joey. Marlowe, no, I'm not that type of woman. It needs... Joey placed her hand on her hip and raised an eyebrow. Okay, I'm not the type who wants a gigolo. Joey snorted, but kept her mouth shut. Now, how much time do we have? Joey's eyes widened. I thought you said you didn't want to go. I didn't want a gigolo, but if we're going to the club and and, and hiring him, I can't see him sit there all night and wondering what, what happened. Marlowe, no, we're going. I'm going to stand there while you explain. You're the one who hired him and didn't desire to avail myself to his services for the evening. He still couldn't believe Joey pulled this. When we were supposed to meet him, Ten. It was supposed to be you, not both of us. Marla glanced at the watch. She had less than an hour. You never used to panic. Then he'd meet the man, tell him about what happened. I'll get him to take a quick shower. I feel funky. She grabbed her toiletry bag. Don't try anything when I'm gone. She fired from the shower ten minutes later. A grime a two-hour car drive trip after a long day at work washed away. Immediately, she realised her clothes were no longer sitting on the counter, but she had placed them. She shrugged it off, thinking Joey must have grabbed them. Up. After Harry drying her, her hair, she wrapped the towel round her body and walked out the door an empty bedroom. Joey? Silence. Joey? An uneasiness crept in her stomach, sowing the contents. Joey? Still nothing. She walked into the living room and worry increased when she found it empty as well. Thinking to get dressed as fast as possible, she dashed to the bedroom. Only his suitcase was no longer sitting in the luggage rack. Joey, she groaned. She placed the room, trying her finger at the thumbnail. Joey was outrageous, unpredictable, unspoken. But Malone even thought she'd leave her in a Dallas room, hotel room, nothing, anything to wear. Thinking there might be something in the dresser, she ran to it and again, op- opening 
began opening drawers, but as she found each one empty, her panic increased, the pounding on her head became unbearable. Every bit of her clothing was gone, including her underwear. She couldn't believe Joey had done this. They had been best friends since the moment she hired Joey. Marlon took her, shook her head. Even with her over-the-top personality, Joey would never leave in Dallas without clothes. At least Nalo didn't think she would. Marlo wandered back in the living room and realised the closet door was ajar. She walked, walked to it, hoping Joey had left her things in there. Her heart sank when she pulled it open and found only the red dress Joey had brought her, hanging there, freight over one shoulder with a pair of off-the-black high, off-black thigh eyes and racy red push-up bra over the other. Resting on the floor was a pair of matching stiletto pumps, a piece of stage, hotel stagery was stuffed on top of the dress. She yanked it off out of the dress, dread settling into her stomach. Marlow, you'll kill me when you get when you get back to her, get back to Abilene. Mister Jones will be at the club wearing a green shirt, sitting at the bar. He's supposed to be over six feet, blonde with blue eyes. Don't don't do anything I wouldn't do. Marlow waded out the piece of paper and threw it in the waste bucket. How could Joey do this to her? Marlow didn't need a break. She needed was a good assistant. She looked at the dress and shook her head. It would barely cover her butt, but there's no way she's going to meet a hired escort dressed in that. She didn't care. She sat there all night. She didn't, really didn't. I'm sorry, Mr. Jones, but we have no idea. No, I have no idea for an escort tonight, Marlow said with a frown. No, this would sound right, but how did one fire Jiglo and not sound like an idiot? She hurried down the street to the club and signed. When the neo sign came into view to block her head, a flashing red and white letters pierced the dark sky. Street illuminated the entrance. With each step she took the set of heels, jarred her feet. She returned to her hotel room. Tonight she consigned the red torture devices to hell and soak her feet for the month. She paid the doorman. Hurry to nightclub, goosebumps exploded across her skin while she'd stepped from the sultry Texas heat into the cool air of the nightclub. A glaring reminder that her chest was almost as bare as her neck. She shivered and crossed her arms. She was ready to kill Joey when she got, got her, get hold of her. A red blanket sheath hung on her hips and rear end, highlighting every jiggle. With every step, the hem of it rose, and she hoped it wasn't rising above the top of the lacy thigh highs Joey had left for her. Malone mentally reminded herself of Joey's description of the man he eyed. He's six foot tall, blonde hair, green eyes, and wearing a green shirt. She glanced around the room and was surprised that more than a couple of pairs of eyes stared back, expecting like a piece of meat from the stockyards, usually... Jane Malone Jane Smith did not attract attention. Small boned and short. She lacked the feminine attributes most men thought was sexy. Well, at least the little big commercials told them was sexy. Malone rubbed her arms and scrutinised the men while line dancing. Hmm, lots of good looking blondes. None of them were wearing a green shirt. Unwilling to able to abandon her search, she decided to make one trip around the club. Marlow would walk past a few of the tables, looking over the men, but no, not making eye contact. They can her feet intensified with each step. Joey never 
had left those clothes, knowing Marlowe would never let the man sit there all night, in rules of etiquette were so ingrained in her, she would have to she had to tell female Hooker. She had to tell Mel Hooker she didn't need his services for the evening. She it was a commotion to do exactly the right thing. Isn't it so sad? She might have laughed at a foolish fault. She glanced around the club again, almost shrunk under the scrutiny. Ignore them. She could almost hear Joey whisper in her ear, determined to make it through the crowd and find Mr. Jones. She threw her shoulders back, causing a chest to rise and raised her chin and lunch. Then she saw him sitting on the lap at the end of the bar, with her head practically in his lap. Marlow glanced at the woman, gave her a dirty look, then cut a look to the man. Though he draped his arm around the, the back of the other woman's hair, he was staring at Marlow. She shivered as his gaze dropped down from his eyes, then to her shoulders and fighting her breasts. He continued a frank assessment down to toes, then all the way back up. One corner of his mouth quivered, qu- quirked, eyebrow was raised. Before she allowed herself to contemplate how to approach a paid escort, he leaned over and whispered something in the woman's ear. He had smiled, smiled, and she shot Marlow another dirty look while flouncing away. Marlow glanced back at the one man to find him gazing directly back at her, his intense stare causing a heated blush to rise from her chest to her face. Marlow walked slowly towards the end of the bar. She inhaled deeply and took a seat. Be short to the point. Mr. Jones, I think there's been some kind of mistake. Darling, he said, his voice as smooth as whiskey. You're drinking? I'm not Mr. Jones, although I have to say. His eyes travelled down his her body again. I turned her face. I didn't mind taking his place. His sensuous curves curved, and a couple of dimples appeared. She wondered twice, gathering the courage to explain who she was. If she was about in the ballroom, in her own clothes, she wouldn't have a problem confronting this man. Joey wouldn't float. Malone rarely used flirtation. She never understood the finer points. Uncomfortable in any kind of man to woman situation. Marlow failed miserably during a last stint of dating scene. Never the one to sleep, spend a Saturday night defenseless. Jay badgered Malow about finding a man. But Malow avoided the discussion. She wanted to find a nice man and wanted to settle down. Malow was looking for a great passion, a dependent man who wanted a quiet life with a wife and kids, a life fine was and was fine with her. Joey thought she was a crazy hence to his escort. As, far, as he sat there smiling at her with her blasted dimples and expectant look on his face. I know that's not your real name, she said, where his taxi action had grown more pronounced. But there's been a mistake. He leaned forward, placing his arms on the bar, confused, darkening his green eyes. I'm not the one who hired you, but I promise you you'll get paid. Hide me? He almost croaked. Yes, he said, bluntly. Another glimpse of her eyes wandered to his open collar. A glimpse of golden brown hair curled in the V of his great green shirt. She found the urge to, t- to tell him to button it up. At the same time, she couldn't resist reaching out to comb her fingers for those curls and feel the hard, hot muscle in his chest beneath them. Why the hell was she thinking about his muscles? A friend thought that it would be a good idea to hire a man. For me, for my 13th birthday, she watched the dimples as fear like. I said, you'll get paid. I just can't see a good reason of Iron Man, even if he's built like a great yard. He realized he raised one thick blonde hair, but at least 
let me buy you a drink. She searches his expression in his face. Over the perusal. He didn't show any more, more interest in her. He probably would have shown any other woman. He definitely was not come with us. She said, sure. But then I already have to go. Lorraine Cromwell stared at the peanut woman beside him. She placed an order in the bar with the bartender. He felt free to look his fill when she ordered over the bar and ordered a club soda. She was little, small boned of a delicate. She couldn't be more than five foot tall and stocking her feet. When he first saw her walk for the club, he thought she was taller. But the killer fuck at me heels she wore gave the illusion of height. Didn't it didn't matter. He loved all women, tall, short, skinny, fat, and any colour colour. He liked them. He didn't particularly Percy loved as Marie's brother. Heath claimed he did, but he never was never lost for date. He strict guideline when he ended up in his bed. When we dated, knew the scorn, a fun time, no strings attached. He'd been sitting on the end of the bar, waiting for Heath, thinking he'd turn, stood up Liam from one, at work uh, once again. It was about the cool night when he caught he called Heath to grip, grip, gripe at him with a flash of red caught his eye. What struck him first was the demeanour she carefully stepped through the crowd, avoiding contact with most of the men people there. She walked across the floor like a deb on the night of her coming out, but dressed like sin. The dress the red dress she wore left little to her imagination, it clung to every curve she had, a mass of inky hair cutsaded down her back, making her want to bury his face in it. He couldn't make out the colour of her eyes, but she looked at some shade between blue and grey. Surrounded by thick lashes, she wore a little makeup, but be, her bee stung lips were painted almost the same shade as red as her dress, and she's the cutest little overbite. At the moment, she's worrying her bottom lip when he realised he was staring at her mouth, wondering what it tasted like. He, felt, he met her legs and saw apparition. She must have strutted through the bar like a selfish old woman, but she was nervous. Well, who would be when trying to get to pay dead school to take a hike. Now, Miss, he said, leaving it hanging and waiting for her to answer. Smith, Jane Smith. He chuckled, Smith and Jones. He sat up straighter, thrusting a chest out. My real name is Smith. And interesting, maybe Mrs. Smith was using another first name. Mrs. Smith doesn't... Don't you explain why you don't need an escort for the evening? He knew he was attracted to the opposite sex and enjoyed it when a woman was bold enough approach him just as much as he enjoyed chasing them but in all these years he never had one of them trying to pick him up claiming she paid for him for the evening not anyone else not someone else had paid Storm Island a Kate Pomeray mystery by award-winning author Linda Watkins. Late July 2017, Storm Island, Maine. The flashing blue light on the top of the police cruiser cast eerie shadows on the stone walls of the old manor house. I watched as they danced about, blending occasionally the red and white ones from the ambulance. The result was a tabloid reminiscent of the 4th of July that recently came 
and gone. It's both beautiful and ironic. What happened tonight in that house could no way means ever be described as, as celebration. A shiver ran down my spine. I wrapped my arms around myself to ward off the jewel. I was standing in the shadows of the courts of the trees, watching. A rain as death started as a drizzle, was rapidly becoming a downpour. I pulled up my hood of my windbreaker as the heavy drops began to mingle with my tears. The old wooden door of Stormview Manor abruptly creaked open. I waited, knowing in my heart who or what might be coming out. EMTEs pushing a gurney swiftly exit the moose. The hoods of their snickers obscuring their faces as they tried to stay dry. The gurney they propelled wasn't empty. A long, dark blue bag made of thick plastic sat on top. I suppressed a scream as I watched it bounce down the steps of its own, on its way to the ambulance. The tears strained my cheeks intensified. I knew who was in that bag. I knew I'd never see him again. It broke my heart. As the first responders loaded the gurney into the rear of the ambulance, my attention was diverted back to the old manor house. The two men came through the old wooden door and hurried through the, down the steps. One was in uniform and I recognised him. It was Officer Stubble, Storm Island's resident policeman, the other wearing a blade overcoat, collar turned up to avoid a chill, and Stormy Knight was, I believe, a detective, a stranger from the mainland who would be charged with investigating the recent death. I watched the policeman as he conferred. A door opened again, and stepping into the porch were two other figures whom I knew well, my aunt, Heponesia, and her husband, Rolel. They stood on the top step under overhang, sinking shelter from the rain. Rolel had his arm around her eddy, holding her protectively as she leaned her hand into his chest. Manny's overcoat spoke briefly with them. Then then the other officer in uniform emerged from the for the immense, he was carrying several plastic containers, bags that had, I assumed, held a murderous weapon and other vital evidence. I know, I know that as much as I, he wanted to stay, it's time to take my leave. Slowly, before carefully not to be noticed, I turned and walked swiftly down the bath that led to the be the carriage house, a place I called home that summer. Time was now of the essence. They would be needing me soon, and they would come. I needed to be ready. The weekend hunt when tea-building adventure for three policemen is going wrong. Mutant hunt. Oh, oh. Oh, Old school clip survival adventure. Old Apocalypse Adventures, Book One by Anthony 
the TV again. The, the trip. Cloudless sky is slightly coloured scarlet in the east when dark steep stops in front of the blow block. Sleepy soldiers yawn and don't hurry back to check documents. Slide window is lowered. The prosecutor's certificate is exposed in front of the guard's face. Immediately, barriers rise. A patriot leaves the city. Nothing is better than to spend a weekend with the colleagues on hunt. Especially if today Lena planned a, vi- a visit to a- her mother. Next time to see her mother-in-law be only in three months. Boko shot a grin and pressed at Sotomayor harder. What's so funny? Nearby prosecutor is grumbling. Sinuclevy covered his grey hair with the hood of a battle painting special suit. He still has a headache after yesterday's meeting. The bar beer was needless, especially if you needed. He started with whiskey and brandy. Wife tries to call him. She doesn't understand. He had to stay at work for night because of an important case. Well, at least in this, in the country, a connection is not available. Otherwise, phone battery would have already been discharged. Hey, trainee, give me a, me a beer can. Gouvernier fumbles in the back seat, exploring grocery bags. Among the heaps of it, Dr. Buttles, he hardly finds a beer. Here, Costinian Alexandrov held on. Thin hand serves a cold can. Forty-five years old. Sinanlorov leave. Had a pretty good job as a prostitutor. Of the most dangerous district called Dump, but he wanted to, to stay alive to retirement, so goes to Jim and Shitigari together with Detective Balunonegaye. He is younger than his chief for 15 years. He does not wear a police uniform. He must, he would rather look like a bandit, dark hair, low forehead, cool look, thin lips, and a neat beard. Why do we leave so fucking early? Mumble Stemlev and Greedy drinks at Tazio. So it's still about two hours drive. Hours drive. Driver slows down. A car circling round the potholes on the pavement. Doby Doby go to school. Written by Susan Pendleton. Illustrations by Mike Moose. Breakfast mouse style. It was a beautiful August day. The sun was shining. A gentle breeze blew through the yard. The leaves and the trees and the flowers in the yard seemed to be waving good morning to Susie as she burst through the front door into the porch. She had some exciting news and eager to share it with her friends, Toby and Toby. Quickly she climbed into the big green wicker chair below the mouse house. Aunt Olive hung up. For them, using her finger, she tapped on the, their front door. From inside, she could hear Dobby yell, I got it, Mum. Mother? Hey, Susie, Dobby said, opening the door. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Yes, it is, Susie agreed. I invite you in, but the, you are too much, you're much too big, Dobby laughed. He liked teasing Susie about how big she was. Susie kibbled and gave Dobby a poke with his tummy. Silly mouse. 
Mother Mouse, wondering whom her little one was talking to, came to the door. She wore the apron. Aunt Olive had sewn for her. I was wiping her paws on it. Good morning, Susie, Mother Mouse said. You up and I'm about early? Are you cooking breakfast? Something sure smells good, Susie said, sniffing at the air. Cheese omelettes and cheesy biscuits, Mother Mouse answered. Would you like to try some? Mmm, yes, please, Susie said, a great big smile on her face. Okay, I'll be right back, Mother Mouse said, turning towards the kitchen. Just then, Toby appeared at the door. What's up, he asked. Your mother's mum is getting me some of your biscuit breakfast for me to try. It smells delicious. Your mum is getting some of your breakfast for me to try. It smells delicious, Susie told Toby. Mother makes the best cheesy omelettes and cheesy biscuits for everyone. It says, it, it see if I, Toby, and I can bring ours outside too. Be right back, Toby said, running towards the kitchen. A packet for breakfast, Toby said. How cool was that? Pretty cool, Susie said. I'll, I'll go and pull out my picnic table for us. Susie jumped on a chair and ran. Susie jumped off the chair and ran to the corner of the porch where, where Mummy kept her picnic table. It was pretty heavy. Susie t- tugged and tugged. Soon she had it out in the sunlight where he would enjoy their breakfast picnic together. Just as Susie got it placed, Toby and Mother Mouse came to the door carrying plates. Susie reached up and took the plates at one at a time and Mother Mouse and placed them on the table. Then she took Toby's and put them on the table too. Mother went back and got three nibbles full of milk as Toby and Toby scurried down to the table. When Mama has returned, Susie takes, took the nibbles out of the milk and placed them on the table next to the plates. You children enjoy your breakfast. Don't forget to put your dishes up here on the pouch before you run off to play, Mama Mouse instructed. We won't forget. The three friends echoed, settling down to enjoy their breakfast. There are the best cheesy biscuits I ever had, Susie said. Of course, I don't think I've ever had cheesy biscuits before. Probably not, Toby said. Only mice eat cheese. Don't be silly. Humans eat cheese too, Toby said, shaking his head at his goofy little brother. They do, Toby asked with surprise. Of course we do, Susie said. We eat lots of... Stories of the Nice One Poems, short stories, and illustrations from the paranormal fictional novel The Nice One by Joshua Chiani Perry. Illustrated by Judah Claxton. The Nice One Project, Reality Redefined. The history of this world begins in the same players, but the story has changed. In Genesis, Cain, envious of his brother's love of his own, his Lord's love of his brother Abel, offering over his own, plants the seed of committing the first murder in mind. He spies Abel in the field, sharpening the meadow evil tool for shearing. 
Cain grabs a sharp harvesting tool and creeps upon Abel. Right as he's about to strike Abel down in the cold blood, he steps on the twig, snapping it in half. Surprised, Abel rolls around, accidentally driving the shearing tool right into Cain's heart. First murder is now an accident, and the repercussions directly change the course of humanity. The nice one opens in the year 2000. In the Brentford Stresser Street section of Brooklyn, New York City, bed is a large and developed urban centre, the apex of developable explosion. Spectators forecasters been making bids for the past several years, develop housing complexes and new businesses and rushed to plant their roots in an area that had been neglected and hard, nearly abandoned just a mere decade ago. Clonfit had erupted all around the globe. Chris Sinekinson is high and corrupt, his ramp, his ramp and such discontent has bred a response for, uh, for response to ARC. On its face, the ARC is a multi-ethical organisation for cultural entities whose private investments hold many sway in the politics of the world. Their ethos ignorance has brought chaos to the world, and only through order and discipline can humanity put itself, itself back on. The best edible wild plants in Britain, easy to find and good to eat. Kindle edition by Amanda Scott. Some of the best edible wild plants can be found in Britain. Well, which ones are they? Amanda Scott does the hard work for us. Gives us a list of those that are easy to find and good to eat. These plants can be found in the gardens throughout Britain. They're so-called weeds and many people spend a lot of time and money trying to get rid of them. Foraging from your front garden, FF is a new buzzword these days. Amanda explains how we how we don't have to spend hours travelling to find wild food. It's right on our doorstep and been all been been all, where it's been all the time. Just we haven't allowed wild food plants to grow because we class them as weeds, i.e., plants growing in the wrong place. However, they are not growing in the wrong place; they're growing in the right place. These plants are not only edible; they're good. They taste good. They're completely free. By allowing them to grow, we still stem the decline of wildlife in Britain. Most of us don't eat the wild plants regularly for many reasons. We might think they don't taste good or we don't need too much work trying to find them. They need not be the case. Sting this, for example. Make a wonderful cooked spinach, in fact. They say nettles taste better than spinach because it's not as slimy. Other plants don't have to be cut at all. If you only experience of a wild salad, a plate of dilla leaves, it was a bit, a very bitter experience. You have to try chickweed. It's mild in flavour and can be used as a straight subject for lettuce. This isn't about wallowing around in the mud, digging up roots, spending hours peeling, soaking and boiling all sorts of strange, muddy plant material, only to find it tastes disgusting. It's all about a few good bits of plants commonly found in Britain's gardens today. For those who don't have wild plants, there are ways of obtaining them, including waiting for them to come. They will, or, or, or growing them. Oh, go on, give it a go. You know you want to. Highlander, imagine, for lover's sake, Wendy Lou Jones.
He's coming for me, Duncan. Duncan threw his arms around Teresa, the woman he loved more than his own life. As by his own act, his false will alone, he could sometime, somehow halt the impending nightmare which is folding around them. When an apparent drug-related shooting nearly takes Tressa Noel's mortal life, Duncan richly searched for the shooter to bring him to justice. Immortal Amanda is on the prowl again. Her female instincts led them her back to the irresistible Duncan, complicating matters. Trees is unexpectedly confronted with a secret of information she could have not foreseen coming, threatening to unravel the bond between her, her ugly, handsome, immortal Highlander. But it isn't Amanda's wanton desires Teresa has to worry about. With hostile immortals close in, Duncan, cantina in hand, perhaps to take heads in a fight to return their knowledge to normal. But can he detect the real threat in all the confusion around him before it's too late? Highland Imagined is a series based on the original Highlander TV series. The book reboots the series just five seconds before the bullet hits Trita in the TV episode called The Darkness and asks the question, who, who would, how would everyone's life change if Trita had survived? This work of series was fully authorised by David Panzer Productions and Studio Canal Films Limited. However, the content is wholly on an old K Books original creation and new action series.